We have just won the America's Cup. Thousands of Kiwis have just had a front row seat to sailing history. What a moment, what a memory. The Hodaki Golf has just pushed play on party time. Give it with fans. Tell us what you're, what's happening where you are, Emily. time but I've never seen Auckland's viaduct like this. Even from midday I was sitting in a cafe having lunch and there's just people sprinting down Halsey Street. I understand that's because traffic was at a complete standstill. A lot of parents being naughty and picking up their kids early from school to come and see this monumentous event. Now monumentous? Not a word but this (laughs) was an occasion that was worthy of a new word and we made one. So uh, Simon Dello kept the energy high for the whole broadcast, along with uh, uh, the admirable efforts of Jack Tame. But this is Simon Dello uh, crossing to Jesse Took on board Team New Zealand's boat. But on board Terehutai right now, as it continues its lap of honour, is Jesse Took. And Jesse, the atmosphere on board, that must be stratospheric. Paint us a picture, Jesse. Quite simply, the greatest victory lap of world sports history. We've just done a big lap of the Hodaki on board Terehutai, and it is a magical beast. Blair, how amazing was that victory lap? Yeah, that was pretty awesome. That was pretty good, though. <laughs> Perhaps there have been better ones. It, it might have been pretty remarkable. I'm thinking maybe Usain Bolt. There might be some victory laps that were carried out by people uh, that uh, won victories that were contested by sort of more than three other teams around the world and in sports that uh, are actually known by the vast majority of the world's population. Rather than yachting, no disrespect to Team New Zealand and all of that and what we won, but uh, maybe Usain actually has the edge there. Uh, meanwhile, News Hub had taken to actually just vox popping the increasingly incoherent fans down at the Viaduct Harbour. I think that sounds great, personally. (laughs) They're having a good time, Hayden, come on. Everyone's having a good time. I I can't begrudge. I am quite a sour person. I can't begrudge them that. But uh, watching the news tonight, you'd think the entire country is sort of lapsing into a state of delirium. Maybe that's a conjunction, the uh, perhaps unfortunate conjunction of St. Patrick's Day and the America's Cup win on the same day. Uh, But yachting is pretty unique among our national pastimes in that it is all-encompassing. It's literally all we care about now. But within a few weeks, it will undergo a remarkable transformation, and it will become a sport that very few of us uh, know or care about. Uh, We will perhaps struggle to visualise a boat in a few t- few weeks' time. so And that's when all of these debates will start again. We'll go, why is the government funding this? Why are we doing work on the viaduct to make the cup happen again? Uh, and then as soon as we win again, we'll celebrate again like it's the best day of our collective lives. And most of all, what we will do is we will make yachting commentator Peter Montgomery say his famous line. We will make him say it like today, probably more than once. And this is what he said today. 2021 in Auckland, the America's Cup remains New Zealand's Cup. Peter, just hold up. One more time, the America's Cup altogether remains New Zealand's Cup. (laughs) 
<laughs> little timing issue, do you think? I think it must have been a timing issue with the cannons going off on both sides of Peter's uh, of Peter as he had to say that line at a specific time, and then he had to say it again. He'd actually already said it four other times. So uh, he, people, they will remember that 1995 line when he said it for the first time. The America's Cup is now New Zealand's Cup. Uh, they got treated to five times that excitement today. You can't complain that much. It was a great day. It still is out there. People are enjoying themselves on the streets, Hayden, as you'll find out when you go home, no doubt. I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, so that was a high. Let's take it right down, shall we? Well, actually, it wasn't a high for you. Uh, To a thudding low. You want to talk about a piece of Australian reporting that made waves over here, but all for all the wrong reasons. What was it? That's right. Now, last week, Australia's Channel 9 aired a story about... New Zealand criminals being deported uh, from Australia back to New Zealand. Some of them don't know this country. Some of them don't remember it, but they were born here, so they're being reported back here. It was kind of an insider's account. The reporter Jordan Fabris uh, got access to the Border Force uh, operation as it was being carried out, and these criminals were being transported from jail to the plane to come back to New Zealand. Uh, The story, though, is most notable, I think, for its remarkable cruelty. And the reporter Fabris, he harangued people as they were marched across the tarmac and onto a plane that would take them away to this very uncertain future. And this is just a couple of clips of that that I mashed together. How does it feel to be kicked out of Australia? Welcome aboard Australia's Con Air. Every seat taken, this plane is full with the worst of the worst. Our country doesn't want you. Are you excited to go home? That's Jordan Fabris. Now, as a word of advice for any budding journalists, if you do find yourself harassing people at their lowest ebb at the behest of a government you've probably uh, strayed away from the primary purpose of your profession and you should probably go and work in PR or a medieval torture chamber, whatever suits you best. But anyway, this story was most notable for a quote from Australian Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton. And if you don't remember what he said, this is it. It's taking the trash out, then we can make Australia a safer place. So that's Peter Dutton talking about these criminals. You know, Jordan Fabris described them as the worst of the worst. Not all of them are. They can just have committed minor offences. Uh, he's describing them as trash. Now, that was put to our politicians. Many of them responded. Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta had the most notable response. And she said uh, Dutton's comments only served to trash his own reputation. So, Hayden, that's the political angle, but what's the media angle here? That's right. So that reaction from the New Zealand politicians, that was reported over in Australia. But the actual ethics of this report have kind of gone a little bit unremarked, and I think they're worth looking at. So Jordan Fabra's story is notable for its lack of any dissenting voices. The only people that he interviews are Dutton, Tim Fitzgerald, who's from the Australian Border Force, and the either silent or highly non-plus people that he's harassing on the runway. And there's no criticism of the Australian border policies, no airtime for anyone sceptical about whether they're fair or humane. Uh, the reporter interestingly, is given a very unusual amount of access, right? This is a pretty tightly controlled, it must be a highly sensitive operation uh, featuring people that uh, are clearly vulnerable. So it's 
it's all done at the behest of the government. And there's every indication that the government knew or at least highly suspected that this was the kind of story it was going to get. And it's been duly furnished with a report that's essentially PR with a reporter playing an enthusiastic role in the pain that it's meeting out. Oh, propaganda, perhaps. It, it pretty much resembles it. it I, I, it's not far off. Well, this is all the more sinister, of course, because we learned that a 15-year-old was deported as, as part of this program. Yeah, so this is the thing. This is a very enthusiastic, cheerleading piece of puffery for the government's policies. We find out this week that a 15-year-old was among the New Zealanders deported back under this Australian scheme. Uh, the Children's Commissioner, Andrew Beecroft, said Australia had breached its obligations under the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Green MP Goris Garriman called Australia a rogue nation. Uh, this kind of response and these uh, stories make the lack of critique or self-examination in Nine Story all the more jarring, especially uh, for a New Zealand audience, but surely just anyone outside of Australia. Was there any comment on this story in Australia? Uh, no, and this is sort of why I'm talking about it, because it did get people exercised on social media, particularly in New Zealand. I saw New Zealand reporters saying it was an appalling piece of journalism. Uh, but it wasn't really, as far as I can see, covered by Australia's most prominent media critics, including our identically named uh, cousins, Media Watch Australia. Uh, the fact that it didn't receive much commentary sort of seems to suggest to me that this kind of police and government uh, well, authorities and border force and government propaganda is so common that it almost doesn't cause a stir over there. Any kind of, uh, any of this kind of reporting that you're talking about that's going on here in New Zealand? Uh, now, our, our reporters aren't traditionally as subservient as Jordan Fabris is being in this report. Uh, obviously, our reporters don't generally do PR for politicians, and they're not traditionally as different to authorities as this. And just as an example of of, of that, uh, just over the weekend, you had Mihingarangi Forbes carrying out an extremely tough interview with Police Commissioner Andrew Costa. And I'll just play this little clip. This is her grilling him on an opinion piece that he wrote for the Herald. Uh, and the, the opinion piece begins with him pointing out what he saw as a double standard, which is police being criticised uh, for not monitoring the website that was used by the Australian terrorist who killed 51 people in a Christchurch mosque, and uh, also being criticised for taking photos of innocent teens doing nothing outside shops. He saw that as a double standard. This is what Mihi Forbes said about that. Um, now, look, I don't for a moment defend uh, the taking of photographs of young people where there's no reason to. It's against our policy, and if it's happened, we'll deal with it. It's happening. So I'm just wondering, you know, you wrote that. So how are you relating those two together? Because I just w wonder, where in our history can you pinpoint a single act of terrorism performed by a Māori youth? Mm. No, look, the, the point there was not about terrorism. It was about intelligence for police But, but you wrapped it together, that you wrapped it up together, and that's what it does. It yeah. sends a message that you're comparing the two or joining the two. Mm. It certainly was not my intention to... But Hayden, our government agencies aren't above trying to control the narrative, the narrative themselves, though, are they? No, it's not like our government uh, is totally, uh, uh, absolutely altruistic and, and, and has an agnostic, sorry, about about what it puts out there to the public. Just as an example, this weekend you had Sunday, it carried an excellent, it was really an excellent report about Ayafeta Matalasi uh, seeking to enter prison to meet his son's murderer, Shane Harrison. Oh, yeah, I saw that. 
Yeah, and I, now I don't have a report a problem with this report. It's, it was beautifully shot. It was very moving. It's not propaganda, but I would note that it too was reliant on a high level of cooperation uh, from corrections, authorities. This is the reporter behind it, Tanya Page, saying as much in the report. We have been given extraordinary access to go inside. Thank you. To talk to Shane Harrison. Now that's Tanya Page talking about the access that she was given to shoot this story. Now, fair enough, it's a great story, it needed to be told, but contrast that with the years-long battle that investigative reporter Mike White had to go through to interview the convicted murderer Scott Watson. If you don't remember, he had to go to the High Court in 2015 to win the right to interview Watson, who wanted to be interviewed. Uh, now, Watson was convicted of murdering Olivia Hope and Ben Smart, if you don't remember. He was declined permission. He won that case in the High Court. Uh, and he actually had to do this all over again this year. So Corrections also declined permission for Olivia Hope's father, Gerald, to meet Scott Watson along with White this year. Watson went to court again and won. So other examples in 2014, Eugene Bingham and Paula Penfold, and they were working for TV3 back then, they thought they'd lined up a TV interview with Tana Porter and Corrections agreed to it in principle. Then they stalled and it actually uh, got called off when Tana Porter went on early release and then they couldn't interview him at all until he was tried again, until the possibility, sorry, until his convictions were quashed and there was no chance of another trial. So there is a law governing these situations, the Corrections Act 2004, that forbids reporters or anyone else from talking to prisoners with the intent of publishing information unless they have the consent of the prisoner and the Corrections Chief Executive. And there's reasonably good reasoning behind that if you think about it. You don't want reporters necessarily just going up to every murderer and them saying they're innocent, potentially re-traumatising the victims' families. But... Having said that, it is worth notice, noting that there are situations where our authorities are much more likely to grease the wheels for reporters uh, uh, than they are otherwise, and it's usually for stories that they think actually reflect well on them. And that's not a thousand miles away from what Jordan Fabris was doing over on that tarmac, but it's not the same. It's not to the same extent. It's so Midweek Media Watch with Hayden Donnell and um, some uh, comments regarding your America's Cup uh, discourse there. Uh, this is love is negativity. It was the size of the lap that was being referred to around the entire course past all the spectator boats. Audience size in Italy was five million for each race. That's right. Michael. And Margaret says the same thing. I think the point of the comment about the victory lap was that it was a very long one, saluting people <laughs> who had watched from right round the harbour and back to the Viaduct. I have to apologise to Team New Zealand. I thought I took that to mean uh, the most notable victory lap in history, and I obviously have got that wrong. And, and uh, hi, Karen. I've previously found myself disagreeing with Hayden, but I totally agree with him about the America's Cup. We beat three pretty mediocre boats in a boat race, save that sort of ce celebratory embarrassment for when we beat COVID. I don't think you actually said that, that it was a mediocre, did you? I, don't, I think that maybe I was misreported myself there. Right, let's. Uh... I don't think it was mediocre, Karen. I, I do think that there probably have been greater victories in history. Uh, and... oh, actually, not the race. He said mediocre boats in a boat race. Mm. They were pretty good boats. They were pretty good. Well, yeah. 
They're pretty good. Our boat was, yeah, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. Like nearly everyone in this country, I know nothing about yacht racing and don't pay any attention to it for stretches of four years at a time, at which point I will get mildly interested in it and then celebrate uh, deliriously when it's won. All right, well, should we just talk very briefly about uh, Google are going to uh, pay more of our media companies for news? What was the deal that it announced today? Yeah, so this is kind of a little one, but an important one, and it is paying stuff to uh, carry out a vaccine, or what, counter-vaccine misinformation, essentially, through its series. You might, have remember, you might remember it. It was launched in the lead-up to the general election called The Whole Truth. It's a fact-checking series, this one on vaccine misinformation. It will be uh, published in, conjun- in conjunction with Māori TV and the Pacific Media Centre, uh, and so it's targeted at, especially at Māori and Pacifica communities and trying to, I guess, dissuade them from uh, being hesitant about the vaccine because Ministry of Health Research has showed that uh, Māori and Pacifica communities are particularly hesitant about the vaccine. Well, isn't Google one of the biggest sources of vaccine misinformation? Yeah, so here they are funding this very uh, good, worthy project, but actually through their platform, YouTube especially, they're, they're one of the biggest offenders when it comes to spreading vaccine misinformation. They have banned it, but if you remember... Uh, so-called documentary pandemic that went viral on YouTube. Other things have gone viral on YouTube. You can still very easily find vaccine misinformation from a range of sources on YouTube. So they're actually, while they are funding media organisations to uh, clear up vaccine misinformation, these media organisations are essentially clearing up the misinformation that Google is spreading itself. Well, what's the context for these payments? I mean, what's the why? The... The, the why is that Google has been running these kinds of news funding operations for a while. It's actually uh, started negotiations in informal talks, they're called, with New Zealand companies to be included in Google News Showcase. And that will give media companies payments, payments for giving their content over to Google News Showcase, which will then make their news, which is sometimes paywalled, av- uh, available on the Google News app and also available through search. Uh, that program is only available in Brazil, Germany, Australia, Canada and other countries at the moment, soon to come to New Zealand. Now, why is it doing this? Why is it uh, paying these news companies? Well, actually, Australia, again, it has introduced legislation over there aimed at making these tech giants, Facebook and Google, pay for news. And it's interesting that these payments are happening in the backdrop to that because what Google wants to avoid is probably more regulation. They oppose that regulation over there. They had to strike deals with a whole bunch of news companies to pay them for their content. And they're possibly being a little bit proactive, getting on the good side of our authorities in advance over here. Maybe they'll avoid the same kind of regulation. Mm, That's interesting when you brought the subject up. Uh, Is this the first payment? Because I didn't realise they were paying anyone here for news. Uh, No, they have uh, paid for certain sort of discrete news projects in the past, uh, and they're doing this one with stuff, obviously. Uh, this is sort of ramping up. And Google News Showcase in particular, a billion dollars has been allocated globally towards that project. And so 
this is a ramping up of the amount that they're paying for news companies. And that's in recognition of the fact that they've been blamed for destroying the media uh, funding model, uh, just hoovering up every digital ad dollar in existence, just about along with Facebook. And so a lot of news companies are less viable because of Google. Now governments are trying to step in to make them viable again and undo some of that damage while media companies try and work out exactly how they're going to fund themselves going forward.